0: in Acts chapter 27, beginning in verse 1, And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So entering a ship of Adramidium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us, and the next day we landed at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, the city of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salomon, Salome, Salome, whatever that is, <laughs> Salmone, that's what. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens. Near the city of Lycia. Now, when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end in disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. Now, when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Irakladon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauta, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. And fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, The next day, they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not sailed from Crete, and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the the God to whom I belong, and of whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Now, when the fourteenth night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. And they took soundings and found it to be twenty fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be fifteen fathoms. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all, and when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. Well, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and let them, and left them in the sea, meanwhile loosing the rudder ropes. And they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground. And the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. No one likes to hear the words, I told you so, especially my wife. Kathy is a wonderful person, but she has one bad habit. Only one bad habit, by the way. Only one, just one. At times, she leaves the fuel level in her car perilously close to empty. And I've warned a woman. I've warned her many times. In fact, some time ago, it finally happened. She ran out of gas. Her car puttered to a stop. But guess what? She ran out of petrol right next door to the gas station. In his grace, the Lord bailed out my wife. At first, she didn't tell me what had happened, but later her conscience began to bother her, so she fessed up. Kathy admitted that she'd run out of gas, but then she added, you know, if I needed help, I'd already determined I wasn't going to call you. I was going to call James at the church and ask him to pick me up. And why would she say such a thing? Because she doesn't want to hear those dreaded Ford words that nobody likes to hear, I told you so. Well, here in Acts chapter 27, the Apostle Paul has the opportunity to say, I told you so, to the crew of a Roman merchant ship. He's on his way to Rome, enjoying a Mediterranean cruise courtesy of the Roman Empire. He's been placed in the custody of a centurion named Julius. They board a boat, a Roman boat, in the city of Sidon, and they sail past Cyprus to the port of Myra on the southern coast of what is today Turkey. Then from Myra, they sailed westward to the island of Crete and to the port city of Fairhavens. Now realize, after mid-September, sailing on the Mediterranean gets dangerous. After mid-November, it's prohibited. We know the events of Acts chapter 27 occur after the Jewish feast of Yom Kippur in mid-October. Thus, sailing conditions are definitely not favorable. Well, the crew knows that they're going to have to spend the winter on the island of Crete. But the harbor of Fairhavens was open to western winds, and it offered little protection. Besides, it was a tiny town, and there was not much to do there. It would make for a long, boring layover to have to winter in Fairhavens. These sailors, they wanted some entertainment. And so they decide to sail 45 miles to the Cretan port of Phoenix. There was stuff to do there. They could at least check out a son's basketball game in Phoenix. But before they make their decision, Paul warns them, Sail and you'll Bail you'll fail and you'll wail. Now, those weren't his exact words, but you get the point. They're close. Paul was a seasoned traveler, and he knew they were about to make a terrible mistake. But no one listened to Paul. The navigator, the captain, even the centurion, all refused to take heed to Paul's warnings, and so the ship set sail for the 45-mile voyage to Phoenix. And sure enough, just as Paul had warned, the voyage turned into a disaster. A tempestuous headwind arose. Hurricane force gales, enormous swells pounded the ship. The winds drove the boat out to sea. And what was supposed to be a 45 mile ferry crossing turned into a 645 mile life and death detour. They planned on it taking less than a day to reach Phoenix, but it was two weeks later before they saw land again. Their decision was a colossal mistake. The 276 passengers and crew were all placed in harm's way, and to make matters worse, about halfway through the ordeal, Paul pops up on deck, and guess what he says? You got it. I told you so. Read it again, verse 20. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me, and not have sailed from Crete, and incurred this disaster and loss. In other words, I told you so. He continues in verse 22. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me However, we must run aground on a certain island. Here's the summation of Paul's speech. Men, I've got some good news for you and some bad news for you. The bad news is that the ship is going to sink. The good news is that the sailors are going to swim. Land is going to be found, but our boat is going to be run aground. This vessel is going to break up, but you need to cheer up Because no lives will be lost, we're all going to make it safely. It was a thick night. I mean, through the rain and the wind and the waves and the heavy fog and the darkness, no one could see the approaching shoreline. The crew heard the breakers slapping the shore, and they started measuring the ocean depth. They were getting closer. They were worried about crashing into the rocks and busting up the boat. They were still too far out to swim. They didn't want to be drowned in the surf. Verse 29 records their thoughts. Fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. It was a desperate moment. All the experienced crew could do was drop anchor and pray for daylight. Actually, it was at this point that a few of the sailors tried to launch the skiff the little boat that the bigger boat carried along its side. These sailors were scared. They no longer trusted the captain and the helmsman. It was time to abandon ship. They're thinking every man for himself. But when Paul saw what these seamen were doing, he shouts out in verse 31, he says, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. This time the sailors believed Paul. They cut the cords that were holding the lifeboat to the ship and they ditched it in the ocean. In the end, Paul's words proved prophetic. The next day at sunrise, the crew hoisted the sails and headed straight for the shore. They were hoping to run the ship onto the beach. Instead, they hit a sandbar. The bow stuck in the sand while the surf ripped out the stern, the back of the boat. Broken boards and floating timbers filled up the water. Some of the sailors were able to swim safely to shore, but most of the men struggled in the current. As it turned out, the busted up planks from the ship served as life rafts to get them to shore. All 276 passengers on board made it to dry land, many of them on the buoyant timbers. Paul's words, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved, were literally fulfilled. Once again, Paul could have said, I told you so, but this time everyone would have just been glad that they had heeded his advice. Like so many biblical narratives, this story teaches us an underlying lesson. There was an actual shipwreck, but this account also illustrates our spiritual trek. For life is like a voyage. It's like a journey. It's like a ship sailing across the sea. Isn't it interesting how often we use nautical terms to describe how we're doing in life? Well, it's smooth sailing ahead, or it's or, sinker or swim time for me. When someone dies, we often say, "Well, I'm glad he made it to the other shore." In many ways, life is like a ship on the high seas. There are days when all is well, when the sky is clear. When the breeze is gentle, when the waters are calm, but there are other times when the sea gets rough, when the night and the storm combine to create panic and to strike fear in the hearts of life's sailors. We try to reach land, but our lives hit the sandbar of suffering and our plans crumble in the surf. Have you ever had hope break apart? And in those moments, our tendency is the same as these misguided mariners. The impulse is to abandon ship, to jump out of the boat. Every man for himself, we think. We try to launch out our lifeboat. We try to row on our own. We lower the sails, and we start paddling in our own energy. We trust in our wisdom rather than in God's will. Whenever you go whitewater rafting, the guides have a golden rule. The guiding principle among river rafters is simple. No matter how much trouble you get in, no matter how precarious your situation becomes, 99.9% of the time, you stand a better chance of survival by staying in the raft than you do by getting out of the raft. You understand that? I mean, is tricky. You get twisted in the rabbit rapids, you get stuck on a rock, your boat starts taking in water and you think it's time to abandon ship, but it's not. It's definitely not. Despite what you think, you are still better off in the boat than you are out of the boat. See, in the boat, you're protected by some very durable rubber and that's pretty important. Whereas when you're in the water, you become prey to hydraulics and rocks and whirlpools. If you're in the water, even the boat itself, now weighed down with a ton of water, becomes your enemy. A heavy boat can smash you into the rocks, it can sandwich you between its tube and the rock wall. And the golden rule for rafters is also true for the Christian life we are always safer inside the boat of God's will. When the wind kicks up and the waves churn, our tendency is to panic. We let fear override our faith. We jump out of God's will. We take the shortcut. We take the easy way. We take matters into our own hands. We need to realize that we are still safer in the boat than in the water. When you step out of the will of God and jump into the swirling water, Suddenly, you become prey to rocks of evil and whirlpools of sin. Even the boat becomes your enemy. Get in the way of God's purposes and plans, and you're the one who's going to get crushed. Abandon ship, launch out on your own, and you'll find yourself inadvertently fighting against God. Notice, God didn't promise to calm Paul's storm. He didn't even promise to keep his ship intact but he did promise that no one's life would be lost if everyone stayed in the ship. There was safety. There was life in the boat. Paul's words for these panicky pipe eyes is God's word to us. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. It's not enough to be in Christ we must remain in Christ. We need to continue in our faith. When the night and the storm combine to cause panic in your life, you'll make it, but only if you stay in the boat. Paul's words in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21-23 to 23, are for you and me. You who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his death to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable in His sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. In other words, you've got to stay in the boat. God's blessing comes not just to people who come to Christ and have faith in Him, but His blessings come to people who abide in Christ and continue in their faith. Faith needs to persevere. Life is like a postage stamp. Consider the stamp. Its usefulness consists in its ability to stick to one thing until it gets there. Paul's words to the crew are God's words to us regarding His will. The place God has you isn't always easy. Even the center of His will isn't guaranteed to be calm waters. Storms of testing can pound our lives. Perhaps you're in a marriage today that's breaking apart. Maybe you've got a job you're struggling to keep. Or perhaps you're taking a class that's requiring more of you than you expected. Or maybe you're dealing with a rebellious child. You're in over your head in troubled waters, and it's becoming clear there's a shipwreck in your future. In fact, you're not sure you can remain in your situation one more second. You're ready to bail. Man, you just want to jump ship and abandon your responsibilities. But wait, listen again to Paul, he's speaking to you, unless you stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. God will bring you through the crisis. Oh, God is faithful. He'll work a miracle in your situation and He'll save you from harm, but it's up to you to trust Him enough to stay put. There is life and safety in the boat. And it's up to us to resist the temptation to jump ship. I once worked a warehouse job that required some Friday night overtime. Our shipments had to go out, had to get out by Friday night before we could leave. Well, most of my coworkers were young guys with things to do, places to be, people to see on Friday night. Everybody hated Friday overtime, but especially Dave. Poor old Dave. Around noon on Fridays, Dave would take inventory of the situation. And if it looked like we weren't going to be finished on time, he'd start pushing. I mean, he would crank it into high gear. He'd work like a wild banshee. And all day long, he'd be chanting, I have got to go. I have got to go. I have got to go. And some of us are plagued with the same impatience. We can't stand it when the will of God proves inconvenient or when our pain goes over time. We get rankled by the thought that God might have us in an unpleasant situation for a purpose. And we sing the same refrain, "I've got to go. It's easier to bail out on a set of circumstances than it is to buck up. It's easier to jump ship than it is to hang tough. Ellen Goodman is a columnist for the Boston Globe. She refers to America as a nation of leavers. She points out how we left the old world to immigrate to America. And then later in our history, we left the eastern seaboard to move westward. Goodman writes, Now since there's no place else to go, we're leaving ourselves. And what she means by this is that we're bailing out on our relationships on our families, on our friends, on our churches, and on the responsibilities that they involve. This is why marriages end in divorce or why a lot of young people today don't even bother. This is why students drop out of school or why folks bounce from job to job and from town to town. This is why fathers skirt their responsibilities toward their children. This is why commitment to a church is, is no longer something that's common. It's in, it's in decline. Even Christians are jumping the ship of responsibility. When things get tough at work, or when there's pressure at home, or when school is no longer fun, or when you run into a problem with your church, the tendency is to sing, I's got to go. I's got to go. But no, you don't. You can choose to stay put to stay on board, to remain with the ship. You can trust Jesus, and you can stay in the place where He has called you. This was Paul's advice to the Corinthians. The new believers figured that it would be easier to live the Christian life by opting for less cumbersome circumstances. Those with debts were trying to get free. Married folks thought that life would be easier if they were single. Ironically, single folks thought the same about being married. Jews wanted to be Gentiles. Gentiles desired to be Jews. Why do we think that the grass is always greener on the other side? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 24: Let each one remain with God in the state in which he was called. In essence, stay in the boat of God's will it'll take courage. It'll require faith. You'll have to trust the Lord with all your heart. But ultimately, it's worth it. And isn't that what this life is all about? It's teaching us faith. Lord Wellington was the British general who won the Battle of Waterloo. He led his troops to victory over Napoleon. After his triumph, he explained the key to his army's victory. He said, our men were not braver than the enemy. They were brave five minutes longer. Realize perseverance is an important component to faith. True faith hangs on. It has an element of stick to itness. As Christians, we're not scaling a rope to heaven. We're holding on to a rope that's being hoisted to heaven. It's the Lord who's bringing us to heaven. He's the one that's hoisting the rope. It's not up to us to climb the rope, but it is our responsibility to hang on as God pulls us upward. We should never lose grip on God's grace. We need to hold fast. We need to maintain a tight grip on His promises. Grasp tightly onto God's love for us. Squeeze His blessings. Never let them go No matter how dark the night, no matter how rough the sea, we need to stand firm in our faith. Christian author Lyle Rader, he makes a profound statement. He says, faith grows only in the dark. You've got to trust God where you can't trace Him. That's faith. You just take Him at His word, believe Him, and grip the nail-scarred hand a little tighter, and faith grows. This is why God allows the storms in our lives. You don't appreciate the anchor until you felt the stress of the storm. Our love for God deepens when we stay in the boat and when we watch the Lord come through. Grace gets amplified. Faith is fortified. Commitment is solidified. And God gets glorified only from the deck of the ship. This morning, if you're not ready to sing God's praise, If you can't give personal testimony to God's faithfulness, if you lack examples from your own life of God's power to deliver, then it says to me that you've been too quick to jump ship. You haven't stayed in the boat long enough for God to work a miracle in your life. I've heard it said, pray for a faith that won't shrink when washed in the waters of affliction. We need a pre-shrunk faith. A faith that keeps its shape even in turbulent waters. A faith that can float. A faith that can be tested and not draw up or shrink back. See, the greatest danger we face is not Satan entering in and snatching our blessings from us. It's us giving them up and letting go and turning loose of our grip. Hebrews 10 verse 23 instructs us along these lines. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We've got to hold fast. Ironically, those who stayed with the ship watched the vessel crumble out from under them. But as they were flailing in the surf, chunks of the damaged schooner became life vests for the crew members. And this is how God works in our lives. The outcome of yesterday's trial, the lesson you learned, or the pain that was overcome, or the wound that's been healed, now becomes the flotation device that God uses to keep your head above the water in your current storm. Our faith grows. I mean, who would have thunk it? Yesterday's wreckage becomes today's salvation. It gives us fresh hope. Stay in the ship. Hold fast to God. If you remain in that relationship, if you hold on to that responsibility God has given you, then you give God an opportunity to redeem your sorrow and to reinvest your suffering. In Psalm 56, verse 8, David, he tells the Lord, You number my wanderings, put my tears into your bottle, are they not in your book? I love that verse. Do you realize God bottles our tears? God is the great bottler, not Coca-Cola. He collects every teardrop that rolls down your cheek. And then He uses those tears to water your tomorrows. See, the fruit that will sprout up in your future is being watered by the sorrows of today. God redeems, but only if we stay in the ship. Board your own boat. Start paddling in your own efforts. Do your own thing, and you'll have nothing to hold on to in the day of trouble. You'll drown. That's why you got to stay in the boat. Isaiah 61 verse 3 tells us that one day God will trade us beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. If we persevere in our faith, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but one day God will swap a sweetness for our bitterness. People say, you're just wasting time in the boat. Even your friends tell you, you need to jump ship while you can. Doubters will tell you, you're making a foolish mistake waiting on God. It's time you branched out on your own and pursued your own path. Don't listen to them. Instead, cut the lifeboats. Ditch the other options. Burn your bridges. Plot no other alternative. Make no other plan. Make up your mind that you want to abandon ship even if what looks like a better offer comes along. See, real faith is banking it all on God's Word and God's will. Remember, it's always safer in the ship than it is in the water. Continue in your faith. Hold fast to your confession. Even when the surf churns and the boat begins to break apart, God will see to it that you will make it to shore. Understand, no life is immune to brokenness. From time to time, we're all humbled by life and by God. In a Christian's voyage, God works over and over in us through the tools of death and resurrection. We die to our selfish tendencies. We honor our commitments. We remain faithful to the people and purposes God places in our lives. We stay in the place He's called us. We resist the urge to jump ship. And then even when the ship crumbles out from under us, God provides us a way out. He opens a new door. He does a new work. He resurrects a a new journey. Even when the ship gets broken to pieces, God will take what's left and birth something new. See, He redeems shipwrecked pieces of our lives for our good and for His glory. David cries in Psalm 19 verse 14, "O Lord, my strength and my redeemer." Don't you love that? God is a redeemer. He is a restorer. He specializes in transforming crosses into crowns. Defeats into victories, lumps of clay into pieces of pottery, shipwrecks into lessons learned, even floating timbers into life jackets. Just stay in the boat. Around the turn of the 20th century, the heavyweight boxing champion of the world was a man named Gentleman Jim Corbett. Gentleman Jim. He made a comment to boxers, but it also applies to Christians. This is what he said fight one more round. When your feet are so tired that you have to shuffle back to the center of the ring, fight one more round. When your arms are so tired that you can hardly lift your hands to guard your face, fight one more round. When your nose is bleeding and your eyes are black and you're so tired that you wish your opponent would crack you on the jaw and put you to sleep, fight one more round, remembering, But the man who fights one more round is the man who never gets whipped. Hey, never give up on God. Never give up on God's will. Don't bail out on Christ. Don't launch out or branch out on your own. If you do, you're going to drown. Fight one more round. Keep clutching on to God's grace. He'll prove faithful if you stay in the boat.